blessed redeemer. Part two um, of transformation anticipated. So I hope that you have come with some anticipation. Um, yeah, yesterday we looked at transformation necessitated. Why do we need transformation? Us personally and our world. Um, and Joe spoke to us of uh, betrayal um, and how uh, God was betrayed, um, not just once, but uh, many times. Um, and yet we heard stories of how God has responded um, personally in the lives of people with love. And so tonight we're going to look a bit, I think, at how those two kind of hold together. Um, and so as we begin this, uh, this evening, we're just going to start by singing about that love. Uh, so if you would stand with us, we're going to sing, Here is Love Vast as the Ocean. As we come this evening, um, we praise you because of, of that love. And uh, as we come, we just ask that once again you would remind us. Um, yeah, we sing, who is love? I will not remember, and yet so often we forget. And so would you remind us again this evening? Uh, we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So as uh, part of our time, uh, we've been hearing stories of transformation. And so Doris is going to come and share a little bit about um, how her life has been transformed. So would you give her a round of applause as she comes? Please tell me if this doesn't work. <laughs> Very good. Um, uh, well, it's, it's lovely to ha have you. And uh, uh, Doris, as you, many of you will know, is one of our older members. <laughs> I know what age she is, but I'm not going to tell you. Um, so, Doris, some people will not know that you have a connection with Brown Thomas. Can you tell us about that connection? Well, it, it's quite a, a far out <laughs> connection because um, uh, I belong to a family which of merchants, as I suppose we used to call them, and we uh, owned a few shops uh, in the, from the rag trade. And it was one of seven brothers, my father, and he ran the branch of Newell's in Grafton Street. And then, um, we merged with Switzers, and it changed everything because uh, the next thing is we knew we were under Brown Thomas. <laughs> so, and um, I still get discount there. Very good. <laughs> I was in once and I saw a jumper at 150 euros, and I thought, well, no, I can't afford that. But if I'd known you then, I could have made <laughs> <You could>. it. <laughs> yeah. So that's great. So okay. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, Doris then. How? You know, how you came to faith, what was your, your upbringing and, and how you came yeah, to faith? Yeah, well, I was very lucky because I grew up in a Christian home. And I suppose mainly my mother was just the most amazing woman. And my earliest memory is sitting on her knee 
after the bath, and she was drying me with the towel, and she was teaching me to sing Jesus Loves Me. And she just had this wonderful, I think, gift of faith, because she never doubted anything. Um, and even when my father was very ill for 12 years with bone cancer, my mother nursed him through that. And the doctor said he lived that long because of his faith and her nursing. And um, the night he died, he had never had a nurse. <laughs> he didn't want a nurse. And he wouldn't take morphia either. But he, the nurse was to come at 9 o'clock. And Daddy died at a quarter too. <laughs> But uh, they, they were a wonderful couple and a wonderful example of a happy marriage. Um, and that, it just, I always thought that's the kind of marriage I'd have too. Okay. So you learned about Jesus from your parents? I did very much so, yes. And you were brought to church? Yes, we went to Rathgar, Presbyterian Church. And I owe a huge debt to the Sunday school teachers in Rathgar because they... Uh, taught me an awful lot by rote. And in various times when I've been in hospital, where I couldn't, couldn't read even, you know, I so did really not quite well at all. Um, all these bits that I had learned in Sunday school just came back into my head. And it was a great comfort. Mm -hmm. Actually, if ever I'm in hospital, I bring the hymn book with me because there's such wonderful words in the hymn book and words of great comfort. So you were brought up in a believing family. Yes. And I think we talked about this before. There, there really wasn't a time where you didn't believe. No, there wasn't. It just was like a progression of deepening understanding. That's right. It was a sort of gradual awakening to what um, kind of God meant to me. Okay, great. Um, For the theologians, we like to call that kind of covenant theology and, uh, and how God works uh, in, in that way of, of just bringing faith through our parents and, and, and through his word in that way. Now, in, in your life, Doris, obviously you've had lots of ups and downs. Do you want to tell us maybe about maybe something in your life that was difficult and, and how your faith in the Lord Jesus has helped you and, and how, how you came through that? Yes, um, I thought um, when I got married, uh, I thought I was going to have a marriage just the same as my mother and father. And for 23 years, I thought I was happily married with three lovely children. Uh, that wasn't actually quite correct, uh, because sadly, we broke up. And um, that was an awful shock to me, and I was very, very, very heartbroken. And it was just such a dark place to be. Um, but I saw what it did to my family, and uh, they were quite young at the time. Alison had just been married for a year, and uh, Gary was 17 and David 14. And it was just so hard on everybody that. But then they decided that I needed a job. So I was away in the west of Ireland with a friend, and there was an ad in the paper for somebody to manage and run a flower shop. Now, I didn't know anything remotely about managing and running a flower shop. But I did have an idea about running a shop because of news. <laughs> and my father had this idea that I had to know everything. If, if I was in the shop, I would have to know how to work the old-fashioned telephone exchange, which you put all the little plugs in, 
Then he thought I should dress the windows. And, um, I didn't do that for very long because I put the wrong price on a very expensive coat. <laughs> and that wasn't too popular because the customer came in to buy it. And she said, well, I knew really that it wasn't three, three pounds, six and six, it was 13 pounds something. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that, that was one of the things he decided I was to do. And it was great training. But uh, I went for an interview at the flower shop and they were having a party for the girl who was retiring. And I got all dressed up thinking I'd look the best I could. And when I went in, uh, the other girls looked at me. I was, I thought, beautifully dressed for an interview. But they were thinking, that one is no good going to clear out the basement, is she? <laughs> you know? Because floristry, like it's a very messy, dirty job. I know it looks lovely, but it's not. <laughs> it's very hard work. But I've learned that there's a ministry of flowers. Um, Flowers talk to people where somebody can't find the words. And it's just interesting. I know I did, uh, when my doctor died, I did a wreath in blue and white, because blue and white are the colours of healing. And there were lots of occasions that um, we were a bit like a minister in a way, because one day we were joyful with somebody who had got engaged, and another day we were in, practically in tears with somebody who'd lost a loved one. But we were able to help. In, with the flowers, um, I remember one family, uh, they had lost a tiny baby, and the grandmother came in to us, and I was able to do flowers in little daisies and baby's breath, which is that little daisy flower, it's really called Jephsophila, and it meant an awful lot for the family, that. Um, th there were loads of things like that going on. So you saw, I mean, you saw God helping you get the job and, and yes, you, you felt he was with you and yeah. gave you a ministry out of that. Um, you have a Bible in front of you. Um, yes. We talked a lot about the Psalms uh, when we were chatting before this as well. How, how has God's word helped you and uh, spoken well, to you over the um, years? One of the things particularly, um, I unfortunately had two miscarriages within six months of each other and that was a very, very awful time. And I had always turned to the 23rd Psalm. And this time, for some reason, it didn't help me. But then I came across, um, I was telling you the wrong Psalm last night. I was saying it was from Romans. I hope you weren't hunting Romans because no, it, was, no. it was from Psalm 27. <laughs> and it just, uh, Psalm 27, uh, I just came across these words. Wait to the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. And he did. And about a year later, my son David was born, and that was such a joy. Um, and when I look at him now, all what, six foot five or so of him, it's hard to believe the struggle it was to get him in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I, I found the Psalms. I don't think I'd have got through my life without the Psalms, because they've been there for me all along. Um, whenever I'm in any sort of trouble, I go to the Psalms, and they're just such a huge help. Um, they always, there's always some part of the Psalms that just speaks to me at the right time. Um, the one, one I particularly find was the Psalm 34. And, um, yeah, it's in praise of God's goodness. And it says, I prayed to the Lord, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. 
His angel guards those who honor the Lord and rescues them from danger. Find out for yourself how good the Lord is. Happy are those who find safety with him. And that just spoke to me at the right time. Um, I was going over to London and uh, I, I managed to get onto the session. I don't quite know how I managed it, but I certainly landed up. I think you've turned it off, Doris, maybe just, just put it up again, sorry. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Oh, thank you. You go? Yeah. yeah. Um, the session decided that they wanted somebody to go over to London to, um, there was a special alongside week in All Souls Church in Langham Place. And this was the first one they'd held. And it was to just, you went over and you stayed in, house of one of the congregation for a week and you went to various meetings and you could pick out which ones you were going to um, so I arrived over and there were 30 of us there there were 27 men and me <laughs> because the two ladies one was a deacon and she hadn't been able to go and then there was a missionary and she couldn't come either so I was left with the 27 men <laughs> and uh, they were very nice to me um, Actually, one of them said to me, he was an um, English gentleman, and he said to me when I was going home, he said that he had found it very hard to pray for Northern Ireland, that he really just wanted to cut off Northern Ireland and drop it in the sea. He said, but having met Doris and learned about her country, he was going to be able to go now and pray about it and pray for Ireland. So I was delighted about that. I thought, well, that's certainly some good out. But when I got home, I thought, we have to have Bibles in all the pews. So I started pushing for Bibles. And uh, we have them now, actually. We have them on the pews. And I was, so well, that now was a good achievement for both being over in London for a week. <laughs> yeah, that was a great experience. Well, Doris, I think our time has run out. Yes. I, but I, I really, I think, folks, what has really struck me about all the interviews and preparation for them is that how little maybe we do this kind of thing one-to-one -one and just really ask those, those sort of searching questions, but not in a hard way. You know, what has your life been like? How has God helped you? And it's lovely to hear Doris's testimony of her faith uh, from childhood and just how God has been with you and how God has spoken to you through your word and how he's used you in different circumstances. And it was a delight for Katie and I to go and, and chat more to you about that. We've chatted about those things. And I just want to encourage people in the church to do more of this and to be encouraged as well. So thank you very much, Doris. And maybe we'll thank give you. her a round of applause. Thank you for listening. so you should, you should ask her about more of it. But one thing um, that was, yeah, I think is just God's spirit. I had chosen songs um, before I heard her story, um, and yet the next song we're going to sing is called My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness. Um, and as, you, as I spoke with Doris, I was just um, amazed by how much thankfulness overflows out of her. And the second verse reads, My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who walks beside who floods my weaknesses with strength and causes fears to fly, whose every promise is enough for every step, step I take. 
sustaining me with arms of love and crowning me with grace. Um, and yeah, amazing how the Lord has sustained you. Um, and so uh, let's stand and sing of this thankfulness. Thankful. Be seated. Uh, Morgan is going to come and read to us from the Gospel of John. From the Gospel of John 13, 1 to 5. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world, this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Thank you for the reading there. Uh, I'm on here okay, yeah? Brilliant. And um, my name is Joe Donnelly, if you, if you don't know, my, sh my wife Sharon, my co-accomplice is here with me. Um, we work in Ringsend uh, at the old Ringsend Mission Hall, a place that me and my mates used to vandalise when we were growing up. And um, the Lord led us back there, uh, back in the last century, to see if a work of transformation could be done in the, in the place itself and in the community. And so the theme for our meetings these days is, is the theme of transformation. Last night it was, um, it was trans the, the necessity of transformation, why we actually need and why God is always working this within this culture of transformation, so to speak. And this evening, it's just to really take a similar type of approach of several scriptures and life incidences about this, this secondary theme of transformation being anticipated. And... Um, our reading that we've just had there speaks about the, the events in the upper room some more here. And in, in Luke's account of these events, at the beginning of the narrative, in Luke 22, verse 14, it says, uh, When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. And Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And 
I just, I've just been meditating on that phrase of Jesus, I have eagerly desired this, you know, to do this with you guys. Uh, and he said, even as if to accentuate it, before I suffer. And I think, you know, if I, if I knew that there was, a, that there was a, a suffering event ahead of me, I wouldn't have an eager desire for it. I would have quite the opposite reaction. But here's Jesus expressing this anticipation that, as it says in Hebrews, he could see beyond the suffering. And thank God he could. But I, I love that expression of Jesus, I have eagerly desired, because as you read through the four Gospels, he doesn't usually express himself in those terms, does he? He sort of pulls back quite a lot. But here he's, he's stepping forward. He's stepping into this to engage with this. The significance of the whole events that were going to take place. He was eagerly desiring to see this completed. And earlier in the Gospels, it says several times, he set his face as a flint for Jerusalem. Took an incredible level of focus. And um, in our reading in John's Gospel there, it says in verse 1 and verse 3, the same two words, Jesus knew. It seems to be fairly pedestrian, you know, Jesus knew, but it's, it's very profound when you look at the context there. In verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And then in verse 3, even more profound, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Isn't that an incredible statement? You know, before he surrenders to being arrested, to being abused, whipped and scourged and crowned with thorns, mocked and kicked, dragged through the streets of Jerusalem, nailed to a cross. Before any of that, just let the words of this verse soak into your heart and soul. And even John's writing, isn't it so beautiful that John is able to step in Almost, if you could say, where angels were to tread. Such a sacred, holy space. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. The next verse, so... You know, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, began to wash the feet of his disciples. Isn't that extraordinary? You know, 
we're very familiar with this. And sometimes familiarity can breed, not contempt, let's say, but you know, it's, it's sort of, it's just so familiar. And sometimes we really do need to indulge ourselves, just open up our hearts afresh. And it's one thing to see Jesus, you know, it's one thing for me or you or anybody to get a basin, come on, I'm going to wash your feet, you know. But the way John describes it here, this Jesus knew. I think it really shows you, if you want, the epic nature of what was happening here. That Jesus was bringing his disciples into an anticipation of this transformation that his suffering, his death, and his resurrection was going to initiate, was going to begin to unlock for the human race and would one day be fulfilled when the trumpet sounds and the dead will rise. So, you know, we often sing the hymn, you know, meekness and majesty. I think this is such a beautiful cameo of the meekness and the majesty of Jesus. And John just really gets right in there, I believe, through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read it again because I just, it just fills up my heart and soul. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. All things. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. You know, his identity, if you want to put it that way, peerless as the Son of God, an almighty God in flesh. And then he gets up from the meal, takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist, and takes on the form of a lowly, humble servant. And began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, I know I'm mixing this up, but in verse 1 there it said, says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or as other translations would say, he showed them the full extent of his love. You know, there's lots of different ways that that's translated. So it's just showing you that it's, it's, it's almost like it's coming to a crescendo because he's going to have to step away from, you know, this is probably the last opportunity he will have, this side of the cross, if you want to put it that way, to really express his love because he's going to be arrested, taken off and, and so on. And here he is showing them the full extent of his love. And yet the, the, the meal has taken place and it, it's just that phrase again in verse 3. When he washed the feet of this, his disciples, it was with this full conscious sense and knowledge of all things being put under his control. And have you ever thought that 
I've no way of proving it, but I, I, you know, as you meditate upon these things, it must have been the case that Jesus washed the feet of Judas the same way as he washed the feet of John. I mean, if it was me, if I was in that position, as unlikely as that would be, and I came to Judas, I'd be saying, like, you know, there's limits to what I'm expected to do here. Because it, it said in that passage as well that, about the betrayal again. It says it, just in that passage. And I would sort of hold my head back and say, I don't really want to do this. But have you reflected, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus would have washed the feet of Judas in a way that nobody would have suspected that he was the betrayer? It shows you the love of Jesus right to the very end. Right to the very end. Can't even begin to think of how Judas would have felt having his feet washed by Jesus. Can't even begin to go there. But that picture of Jesus washing the feet of Judas before he goes off to betray him. And of course we know about Peter's explosion when Jesus washes his feet. Because Peter had a sense of the epic nature of what was happening. I can't let this happen. And, you know, I love this idea about the anticipation of God's transformation and about how God knows how we're hardwired as humans. You know, Sharon and I have five children, and there was always this thing about Sharon would probably find out far faster than I would and far more efficiently what the children want for their birthday or what they have their heart set on for Christmas or whatever. And then the child would set out their stall and it's a bike or it's a doll's house or it's whatever it is. And then the, anticip the anticipation of the child then. You know, where are we going to hide this bike or where are we going to hide four bikes or whatever the case might be, the madness of the whole thing. But it's the joy of the parent, isn't it? It's part of the joy of the parent is to manage that whole madness and, and to appreciate the child's expectation and to see the glint uh, of expectation in the child's eye and the trust and the confidence of the child that you will keep your word. And what parent wouldn't move heaven and earth, to get that bite there or whatever for that child and to fulfill the trust that they have in them. And what do you think, how do you think God feels about us? As we're anticipating everything that Easter promises. For us personally and our loved ones, but for our city, for our land, as, as one writer put it, the, you know, what God did for Jesus on that first Easter morning, he's going to roll out across the whole cosmos. That's how enormous the Easter impact is, isn't it? The enormity of it across the whole cosmos. And, and does not tie in with what John is saying here. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things Echoes of Colossians chapter 2. All things were made by him. All things are sustained by him. 
And he had that knowledge. He had that full, undiluted revelation. And how John, it's incredible, isn't it? How John writes into this with such revelation himself from the Holy Spirit. Knowing the thoughts of Jesus as he was standing up from that table. Not that I'm trying to do these fellas a favor. There's a bad smell in the room. I better wash everybody's. You know, it's not anything on that scale at all. This is about the meekness and the majesty. This is about the great king humbling himself, expressing the full extent of his love and creating an anticipation in, in his disciples. And they're going to need, they're going to need that to sustain them over the coming hours. God's people have always needed a strong anticipation to fuel their prayers to not so that they won't give up, so that they won't pull down the shutters on God and say, God's abandoned us, God's forgotten about us, God's not at work today, and all this type of stuff. You see, we do need this anticipation. You know, yesterday we were looking at how we we need to know that there is a necessity for this transformation. God wants it. Jesus died for it. And then it's great to engage with that sense of anticipation. I was thinking of um, lots of passages, especially in the Old Testament, about how, you know, at the time of the Exodus, before the Exodus, the people were groaning, the people were anticipating that God would do something. They were make, having to make bricks without straw and there were babies were thrown into the Nile and all this type of stuff and how they were grown and anticipating and God met and exceeded their wildest expectations. And there is always this sense of um, anticipation. I don't know if you're familiar with Isaiah 35. Just very quickly, I read, uh, it's a great passage, great favorite passage of mine, really encourages me. And um, it's a long chapter. I'm only going to put the focus on about two, two verses. Isaiah 35 speaks about the desert and the parched land, and it's painting a bleak picture. And, um, but yet it's going to be a transformation. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom, bursting into bloom, great rejoicing and joy, glory and splendor. But then in verses 3, and this 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 is this space of anticipation. In verse 3, 4, 3 and 4 of Isaiah 35, strengthening the feeble hands. Do you know that passage? Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. And it goes on for the rest of the chapter. I'm not going to take the time to read it. It goes on to speak about the transformation Water gushing in the wilderness, burning sand becoming a pool. A huge statement in Isaiah 35 of transformation. But do you notice the space there 
for, for those that are anticipating it. It's beautifully expressed. And it might apply to you tonight. Often it applies to me. Sometimes you feel overwhelmed. You feel overwhelmed with people's struggles. God's bringing people across your path. You're seeing brutality. You're seeing all sorts of sin and, and wickedness seem to be abound. And sometimes you can really feel that it's overwhelming you. And these verses, verses 3 and 4, these are, these, are for, these are promises for those who are anticipating this transformation, if I could put it that way. Strengthening the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Don't bail out on God here. And when we carry that into our situation, thinking about Easter week, thinking about the message of Easter, thinking about its application to my life going forward, you know, it can boil down to this. Don't bail out on it. Hold on to that. Let that anticipation bubble up with joy. Let it deepen. And, and drill down into it. You know, this sense of being almost like being homesick for heaven. When you're in this world, sometimes things can overwhelm you. And as, um, you know, as I, as I mentioned yesterday about um, working in a community in an urban community like Rings End and, and seeing people wanting to come against you and then seeing the love of God sustaining you and the grace of God empowering you and then the vindication of God against the people that said, oh, you're not going to prosper here. You're not going, this is not going to happen. We're going to see that this... That. And it really does cause this anticipation to deepen in you and say, yeah, God's in control here. And um, another story I was thinking about as I was preparing for tonight is, um, you know, one of the things that we did several years ago, we were saying, okay, we can, we can do this work and we can do that work in the community. And I was reminded of it by what you were saying, Doris, about uh, wanting to put a Bible on all, the, on all the chairs. Well, and how important that is, like, you know, but what the, the, the sort of thing that God put on our heart several years ago was to get a really good quality New Testament. And in Ring's End, the bridge defines everything in Ring's End. If you know Ring's End, uh, people who are part of the tribe in Ringsend, are you from over the bridge and all this type? And it's the East Link Bridge and it's Ringsend Bridge and this, this bridge because uh, the, the daughter meets the Liffey and there's bridges. And the bridges are very strong boundary. And so we, we really prayed that we would get to write New Testament and we got one called The Bridge to Life. And that was, when I saw that, I said, this is it. 
And here's the strategy. We just worked with a very simple strategy, and that was that if we're working to see transformation in this community, um, however long it takes, it's not going to bypass the Word of God. you know that sort of way? And so our, our strategy was to get a really good quality New Testament and buy, we bought them directly from the office in New York, the International Bible Society that produces them. And we, we had to buy, I think it was a, a thousand at a time or 500 or 750 to make the shipping charges free. You know the way it is the, once you order above a certain amount, it's free. So what's the minimum? Okay, we'll, we'll order the minimum, even though it's hundreds. And then we decided to adopt a strategy, just knock on each door, not put it through a letterbox at all, and just sort of say to people, listen, this is called the bridge to life. Now, this is a New Testament. It has like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in it. I'd like to give you a free copy of this if you promise me you're going to read it. Come on, be honest here. If you're not going to read it, I'm not going to waste giving it to you. We decided to be sort of, take that approach. Sort of offer it, but then say, I don't want you to take it unless you're going to read it. Will you read it? Well, then I'll give it to you. That was the way we decided to do it. And uh, it sort of worked quite well in, in the sense that some people said, do you know what, I'm not going to read it. And so myself and another fellow were, were going around and so we had to come up, <laughs> what do you say in that? And then, like, oh, do you think anybody in your house would read it? Uh, no, Grant. Okay, well, listen, you know where we are, if you ever think you want to read. You know, because how, how do you learn how to do this stuff? And so then people saying, okay, give us one, I'll read it. Now, are you going to read it? Are you just saying that to me? <laughs> so... This is the way it was going. And we realized this is going to take us years to do this. But it's something we're going to commit to for two hours a week, every week. Knocking on doors. And here's the thing. Have you ever noticed this, if you've ever done it? Knocking on a complete stranger's door and seeing a shadow coming to open the door, your heart goes through your boots. No matter how often you've done it, you just want to run and say, get me out of here. I don't know what I'm going to face here. And I remember a woman opened the door saying, I wouldn't vote for any of you. <laughs> and I was saying, right, Grant, this is just a, no, you needn't be giving me that. I'm not voting for, I'm disgusted with this. And, okay, don't vote for any of us. I just went to the next door, you know. But here's, here's what I'm saying here is that I, I knock on this door in the flats where I grew up myself. I grew up in the flats in Ring's End. And there was, my parents had eight children. I'm one of eight children. There was 10 of us in a two-bedroom council flat uh, growing up. And um, so I had a soft spot for, for the flats where I grew up. And this particular door, uh, I knocked on it. And I gave the little preamble. This is, this is a New Testament. I'd like to see if you're interested in reading it. And this woman didn't look great that opened the door to me. I sort of wondered if she was on drugs or if she was drunk or whatever. She didn't look great at all. And I said, this is a New Testament. 
it has a great message in it, and it really changed my life. You see, when I started reading this, my life has never been the same. And so, if you think you'd like to read it, I'd like to offer it to you. And she said, what would be the point of me reading that? And I said, well, um, you would learn, for instance, about how God loved you so much that he let his son die on the cross just for you so that you could know him and all that he has to offer you. And when I said that, she just exploded and used a lot of bad language and so forth and so on. She was basically saying, how dare you talk to me about God's son dying? My son died in hospital. And where was God when my son was dying? And my son was taken from me. Don't you stand there. Now, she was using all sorts of language and gestures and so on. I was scared. And, uh, you know, sometimes like this, you just, you just get an anointing from God. You just get... Uh, A bolt of lightning hits you and you get bravery that is certainly not your own. And um, so I said to her, um, I can't begin to understand how you must feel. I've got two sons and if I had a thousand lives, I would give every one of them for, for any of my sons if they were dying. I've got three daughters as well. And I said, but I want to say something to you about God's son dying for you. He hung on a cross, not for three hours, much longer than that. But for three hours, he was just in agony hanging there. And I just began to share about the whole thing and about how the father had to witness witness it as well and everybody abandoned him and people were mocking him and jeering him and so on and I said as bad as your son's death must have been imagine how bad it was for Jesus and his father you know and just out of the blue she said to me I've decided to end my life tonight just like that and she said you're interrupting my plans. I mean, what, what can you say? And I was just really gripping my hands and fists and silently screaming to God, what do I say? And I said to her, well, if you want to end your life tonight, there's three things that God wants you to know. And she said, right, come in and tell me them. And she turned her back and walked in. And I was going, what am I going to say? <laughs> Give me three things to say. Because <laughs> I was totally winging it here at this point. And she sat me down. And I, I probably said about 300 things just to be on the safe side. Because I felt if she keeps listening to what I'm saying, she will, she, God will have the scope in case I get one of the three or three of the three wrong. I'll keep on saying things that God wants her to know. And so, to cut a long story short, uh, she came to know the Lord. She didn't take her life, and she, she surrendered her life to Jesus and came to know the Lord. And, um, you know, I suppose when we, I share that story tonight to encourage you to anticipate 
this transformation. Because what's the opposite to anticipating it? Relegating it, nullifying it. You know, God's not God's finished with this world. Um, you know, it's 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 going to hell in a handbasket type of thing. We just we're just waiting for the trumpet to sound and we're out of here, and all this type of stuff. But just you know, carry this anticipation. Let it deepen. And then let it fuel your prayers. Let it fuel your, your activism. It's what fueled our activism to go out and knock on people's doors and offer them a New Testament in a way that it wasn't just, look, there's a New Testament, good night and God bless you, and I'll go on to the next door. It was to try and just sort of draw them out a bit and say, I'd, I'd like you really to read this because it changed my life by reading it. And um, another little thing that I can say in, in encouragement with this is that um, about two years ago, I was watering flowers at our thing. We, we know a little bit about the Ministry of Flowers as well, Dor- uh, Doris. And uh, there, was a, there was a load of uh, um, police motorbikes, you know, those big, they're like spaceships nearly, they're that advanced now. And uh, police coming in for their lunch, and, and they're like frogmen coming in because they've got walkie-talkies and they've got all sorts of kit and black leather and all this type of stuff. And I knew that there was a few lads in the cafe that were struggling to be on the right side of the law, and uh, they felt a bit uncomfortable with police coming in, and all this. there was a certain amount of electricity associated with that. And I was watering flowers, but just it seemed randomly out of the blue, the police were leaving and I sort of nodded and they, they went that way. But then one of them came back and like I, I don't really meet a lot of police. Um, and this fellow just said to me, you give us such hope. And I felt looking, are you talking to me? With my garden hose in my hand. And he said, you just give us such, you just get, put your, your head down and you get on with stuff. And, you know, we, we hear great things going on here. And uh, I just decided to go. I said to him, come here, come here. And I said, just come down here. Just come down to this part of the back garden here. He said, see this very spot? And I said, this is a word of encouragement for you. See this very spot where I'm standing? I said, 40 f- years ago, about 40 years ago, 42, 43 years ago. On this spot, me and my mates would be having cider parties. Right? Here. Over 40 years ago, having cider parties. And if we felt like it, we'd vandalize the cafe that you've come out of. Just recreational vandalism, nothing too elaborate like, you know. We weren't really all that bothered. We would vandalize it. I said, so I'm standing here as a transformed man. I'm transformed. And I said, God brought my wife and I, we have a small team here, and we've transformed this place so that one day God would transform this community. And he said, I wish we had more people like you. And I said, will you be one of them? Will you be one of them? And he didn't know what to say. 
And I said, yes. For once in my life, I've been able to pull one on a policeman. <laughs> I usually don't know what to say when they pull me in. But it was more than that. Of course it was more than that. Because I know that that's a sermon he will never forget. And when he sees kids vandalizing and wasted on their head with drink, drugs, whatever, he remembered the story I told him in the place. And it wouldn't have happened except he came up to me. I never met him before. He was, I didn't know him. But somehow they were talking. They must have been talking about the place. And somebody must have known. So what I want to share tonight is this sense of anticipation of transformation. You can lose out. You can actually lose out by not anticipating. You know, so to take it back, imagine our child is saying, yeah, I want a, a chopper bike for, you know, or I want this type of a bike or uh, one of the fancy bikes. I want that, right? And then it's several weeks before Christmas and you're sort of dropping hints and saying to the child, uh, isn't blue your favorite color or whatever? And, you know, a blue bike, you're trying to sort of suss out the sort of vibe there. And the child says, ah, whatever, you know. Ah, whatever, you know. Bike, yeah, I suppose, yeah. Sort of moved on from that, like, you know. And maybe you will, maybe you won't, like, you know. And you're sort of saying, get excited about it. You know, just get in there. Soak up the, the joy that you're going to have. Imagine in the summer, you'd be going off fishing and the road will be your own and you, this, that, and the other. And as a parent, you love that because you know your child can enjoy that as well. How do you think the father feels about us? The transformation. The cosmic one that when the trumpets sound, that's, what's that going to be like? But even people's lives, families, situations, people he's putting you in touch with. Are you embracing this anticipation? I just want to leave that with you and trust that God has spoken to you. Okay, thanks, Katie. Thank you, Joe. Um, yeah, in response, let's just, let's talk to God. Um, God, thank you that uh, from the first betrayal that we looked at yesterday, uh, you have anticipated rescuing us. Uh, thank you that uh, Jesus walked to the cross, anticipating the resurrection. And um, as we walk towards Easter uh, this week, um, would we have greater joy and anticipation and hope um, than we have for Christmas? <laughs> um, Easter doesn't have um, big presents or anything. Um, it has the present, the most amazing gift, um, which is life. And we, <laughs> we are so privileged um, that 
Um, though you were God, Jesus, you, you chose to be a servant, uh, to humble yourself to serve us, <laughs> um, to wash our feet even though we had betrayed you. Uh, may we live in expectation that you have not rescued us for us to sit around, but that you would transform us. Uh, would we um, have eyes that are no longer blind, but eyes that see you transforming us and the lives of those around us, that we would anticipate seeing you changing our city and this island and our world. Um, yeah, would we, would we be people of hope? Um, yeah, give us hearts that eagerly um, anticipate your spirit working in our world. Uh, thank you that in the midst of that, you are not only uh, Jesus Messiah, the Christ, the rescuer, but you are also Emmanuel, God with us. And may we remember that uh, as we walk this journey of transformation, that you walk beside us. And we ask all of these things in the precious name. Uh, Good night, everybody.